Welcome everyone to the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where garden nerds from around the world talk shop, share stories, and offer their favorite tip. I'm your host, Christy Wilhelmy. This week on the podcast, we're chatting with Alexia Allen of Hawthorne Farm in Washington State. She and her husband did a food challenge, eating only hand-harvested food for an entire year. They live on an eight-acre homestead with three other people, raising animals, growing food, and creating a permaculture paradise. Welcome to the podcast, Alexia. Thank you so much, Christy. It is a pleasure to be here this morning. Well, you introduced yourself to me recently, and your story sounded so compelling, I thought we should talk. So I actually know nothing about you (laughs) other than what I've gleaned from your website. So this conversation is as much for me as it is for our listeners. So let's start with your farm. Where are you and what are you working with up there? Well, I live about 20 miles northeast of downtown Seattle proper. So one of our mottos is reclaiming suburbia. Nice. And I moved to 2.8 acres back in 2003, and there wasn't much growing here. So my quest over the years, pretty accidentally, has been to plant all kinds of cool plants here and continue to expand our growing area. So now that includes four acres of forest, that includes an acre of pasture and gardens next door. So by now, we are an eight-acre conglomeration of land that mostly grows food, but also grows our most important crop, which is healthy, happy people. We do a lot of farm programs here, and so a lot of what we do is geared towards that. And when I moved here, there was about... I mean, you could find a little more to eat here than on your average basketball court, Mm -hmm. but not much. (laughs) It was pretty overgrazed. And I just made it my quest to eat one thing from the land every single day. Mm -hmm. A lot of my background is in wilderness living skills. So I was familiar with foraging and okay, I'll eat one clover leaf, one dandelion leaf. Hey, look at these raspberries. I'll eat one raspberry a day. I'll get chickens. I'll eat an egg a day. And that just snowballed into eating more and more from the landscape. And so your what's your hardiness zone up there? Because outside of Seattle, it seems kind of cold to me, but it's probably great for you. It is not California, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. I think we're zone 8A, 8B, somewhere in there. We're in a little frost pocket, and I'm a big fan of microclimate. So I kind of look at my landscape, no where to put the fig tree, where to put the broccoli, and everybody winds up happy. I love that your website introduces viewers to all the elements of your farm, including the animals and the landscape, like some by name, which is kind of cool. Uh, What does a typical day look like on the farm for you? Up early with the roosters. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm usually out to milk the goats which is pretty fun. Those animal chores are very motivating for me. I know not everybody has the time, space, or inclination to raise animals, but it's a big part of the ecosystem here for me. Mm-hmm. So getting those animal chores taken care of. And then we do one day a week where the whole family, everybody who lives on the farm here gets together and we just look at the task list and we just work through it. It's very seasonally oriented. Spring is 
all hands on deck, everything is happening at once. Winter is lots of leisurely walks and huge feasts and sleeping for 10 hours. Nice. So I that is the cool thing about being at this latitude is that the seasons are so prominent in what we do and how we structure our time throughout the year. Mm-hmm. We eat the sunlight that falls on our land. We are eating that. And we get a huge abundance of sunshine in the summer and very, very little, famously little during the winter time. Mm-hmm. So our activity patterns reflect that. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that the animals are a big part of your practice because it's, it's a big piece of permaculture is integration of crops and livestock. That is part of it. So they are part of your ecosystem, your circular circular system, and you have chickens and goats. Do you have other animals on there as well? We have rabbits and ducks, a couple of barn cats and ponies. And then all the humans and a whole variety of wildlife that we also interact with, even if they're not domestic creatures. I view myself not even necessarily as a gardener, but an orchestrator of an ecosystem. Right, exactly. (laughs) So for instance, there was one time where we had to put all our ducks under house arrest because a local (laughs) eagle was just eating them, you know, just kind of going for the all-you-can-eat duck buffet. Snack bar. Kept all the ducks inside for a few days and lo and behold, the slugs just crept back into the garden from the surrounding areas if they didn't have ducks on slug patrol for a week. So I thought, wow, okay, my decision to keep ducks is influencing how I can garden and whether or not I can transplant out those cabbages. So uh, using those animals in the landscape to do the jobs that they love to do and in a way that helps us grow more food and thrive here, that feels like living in a great big uh, adventure movie, (laughs) crossword puzzle in four dimensions. I just love it. My mom is a champion crossword puzzler. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know such a thing was possible. And talking with her about it, I realized I'm kind of living in one. Mm-hmm. What's going to get planted where and which animal manure needs to be where at which time? You said the, the ducks, you know, well, there's this circular thing about uh, ducks, the relationship between ducks and slugs and snails. And as they say in permaculture, you don't have a snail problem, you have a duck shortage. And that's, you know, it's about finding the, the solution to the problem that is also a solution itself. So um, now you talk about this adventure that you're on. You and your husband, Daniel, have a strong set of skills combined. Uh, in addition to foraging that you mentioned earlier, you said, you, you know, you make cheese and clothing from the animals you raise. Daniel creates farm and nature classes for visitors, does archery, tans buckskin and makes kraut. Did you come to this relationship with those skill sets or did you both build them as you went along? We both came to the relationship with these skill sets handy in a pretty magical way. And I sometimes joke, I'm like, wow, you know, how many cute brunettes used composting? To, you know, you, do you know who used a composting toilet? Like, I'm, we're just meant for each other here. Right. That's quite a pickup line. <laughs> So uh, we both came from a wilderness living skills background and a nature observation and nature connection background. 
that's a huge place to start from. That is a fantastic foundation, mm-hmm. not only for the actual practical skills, but also because it's an environment in which we each really feel truly ourselves. Right. And I look at the garden, I look at the landscape, not all the creatures out there are trying to do the same thing. And I got really tired of trying to be the one woman village, mm-hmm. trying to do all the skills at once. So I guess I could sum it up by saying that I bring the chaos and he brings the order. (laughs) And from that arises this lively landscape. It's nice to have partners in that way. (laughs) Uh, Now, when you contacted me, you led with the story about living off heart of about living off hand harvested food for a year. It immediately made me think of Barbara Kingsolver's book, Animal Vegetable Miracle. And I know in, for those who aren't familiar in that story, each family member was allowed to pick one item that was not uh, grown on the land. And that was like chocolate or bananas or coffee. Can you describe your year, what that was like for you? Yes, that was 2017. And we had actually spent the previous six years building up to that moment because we realized we needed more skills in terms of how we could grow what we needed every day of the year. Mm -hmm. We wanted to eat every single day. So how do we plan a garden in order to do that? And obviously people throughout history have have been doing a hand harvested food challenge. This is nothing new. It's just new and unusual in a modern context. So every year we tried to expand the amount of time that we were on our hand harvested food challenge. And it included things like salt. We went to the ocean to get seawater and evaporate it for salt. We really wanted to be as strict as we could. And it was fun to do it together. I was thinking, cause you know, oils are something we take for granted, you know, cooking oil and in my mind, I at one point did the calculation for how many olive trees I would need to have in order to produce enough olive oil for just myself and my husband. And it, it was four and a half, but we were counting on alternate year bearings. So we were like, okay, double that to nine. How did you manage your, your food oils if you use them at all? What did you, or did you use animal fats instead? We used animal fats at this latitude. That's what made sense. I grew sunflower seeds. I grew poppy seeds. I grew pumpkin seeds for oil, the holeless pumpkins. I love pumpkins. Oh, yeah. They're so delicious. Pumpkin seed oil. (laughs) And I could throw a big handful of them into the food processor and make a salad dressing from the whole pumpkin seeds. My diet shifted radically towards a whole foods model. I thought, wow, if I have to press seed out of these pumpkins, I'm growing acres of pumpkins just for a quarter or two of oil, yep. I'm just going to eat the whole pumpkin seed. Right. A similar story with sweets. Now I have to, I have to interject behind mm-hmm. me while well, we're, we're just using the audio, of course, for this podcast, but behind me in zoom, you can see that my books are stacked up. What they're sitting on is an oil press. It's an <laughs> edible oil press that is disassembled because I have been too chicken to press the, the seeds that I grew. I grew some naked pumpkin seeds. Mm-hmm in order to test this thing out. And it's been sitting there for like two years because I'm a chicken. <laughs> but, I, but I know it'll happen at some point when I get motivated, maybe this will be the inspiring moment. So I get it, lots of work, better to eat the pumpkins. Right. And we have an oil press that we have never used. 
So I'm right with you there. Right. Yeah. And the the animals contributed a lot. And we became a, we've become a place where people can drop off their old chickens. Uh-huh. So, so yeah. you're processing, you're processing all those parts. Yes. Yeah. And did you allow yourself anything, uh, any exceptions at all? No. Well, there are two potential gray areas. One is I remember buying in the December before our food challenge, buying some cardamom lip balm. I said, I love cardamom. This will have a flavor. I won't be eating it. And Daniel kind of looked at me sideways in the grocery store like, well, I don't know about that. I'm like, come on, buddy. Yeah. It's going to be fine. And then the other gray area was that I used some bought cheese cultures. Mm. Okay. And cheese rennet. I did make my own. Right. Uh, they, they were just extremely variable. Right. <laughs> shall we say? I think that's okay to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was it. All right. And um, what did you find most challenging about the challenge? The social aspects by far. We had plenty of food, even in the hunger gap time of year. I mean, we were lucky. We had a lot of beginner's luck and accumulated skill at that point. So we ate well. We were never like tightening our belts or eating tree bark. We were eating goat cheese omelets. Tree bark. I'm going to ask you a question about storage next, because that's really the thing, you know, I here in Southern California can pretty much grow something year round. So I don't have to worry about storage. What does your storage situation look like? We have an enormous cold pantry to a converted bay of the garage. That's a cool place where I can age cheeses, where we can have 50 gallons worth of sauerkraut stored up and fermenting, where we can have 200 pounds of potatoes. We fill our house with boxes of onions, hundreds of pounds of winter squash in the fall, and we just live in our storage areas (laughs) and eat our way through it all winter long. That's appropriate to our latitude. So the storage takes time. I mean, as you know, growing the food is one thing, and then having to store it, having to go through the bins of apples every week and pull out the funky ones and give them to the rabbits or the goats. Mm-hmm. that's a whole additional step right did you also feed your animals off of stuff that you grew or did okay. you <laughs> there was a lot of ghost acreage that is acreage somewhere else somewhere off in the distance sight unseen with produce brought to us by cars mm. you know that was growing our chicken food for instance mm-hmm. and we keep trying to right size our animals to get our animal systems to the point where we're not importing additional nutrients, but we weren't there that year and we're closer now, but we're still not completely there. So we were buying animal food. That does bring up the other question, which is, did you barter with others or exchange anything for your, you know, services or, or foods in your community? Trades and gifts were totally fine. Yeah. As long as the whole story from the earth to our plates and harvested was hand harvested and you know no cash changing hands got it people got so excited to give us food this really tapped into some you know deep human need fancy that for Mm -hmm. finding gathering and sharing food with others this seems to be something that humans really like to do so people are like hey i trapped this squirrel here eat this squirrel 
Uh, or here I grew avocados. I live in Miami. I'm going to send you a priority mailbox with avocados. Ooh. Those are the only avocados we ate all year. That's amazing. A friend went to California, brought us back a suitcase full of lemons in the winter. <laughs> it opened my eyes to the history of food as well. I remember reading kids books where, you know, out on the prairies, they'd get one orange in their stocking. And to me, as a kid growing up in California, I was like, why is, why that, is that a big deal? Yeah. Now I get it. Yeah. Now I get it. So do you have a greenhouse or do any overwinter gardening at all? So many things. We are swimming in greens right now. My hoop houses are bursting with kale and arugula and all kinds of things that I planted in the fall, as well as a whole row of newer plants. And given that we have ponies, I make horse manure hotbeds in my greenhouses and I can start, you know, I have cucumbers growing there and all my tomatoes, et cetera. All the warm weather crops are getting a good warm start in the cold spring. Nice. And I know this is sort of an awkward question because I, I know when Barbara Kingsolver's book came out, there were people who were like, oh, well, they have money so they could do this. And I know that is often a question because eight acres, it's kind of, you know, these days, Mm -hmm. land is hard to come by but what what was that like for you financially during that year or you know during the prep years for it excellent question because part of my quest is how do I make this more accessible uh -huh. to everyone one of our mottos is good food within walking distance for everybody right so it's like oh well I don't want to make this just a cute pet project yeah how, what are the practical aspects of it? So yes, there was a huge time aspect and I had quit my full-time job in order to do this and saved up in order to do it. We grew more and better food than it is even possible to buy. Yeah. So there was that, like we did not spend money at the grocery store. We spent an equivalent amount in time. I've sold produce in a variety of ways over the years far and away, the biggest source of income for us, for what we're doing in the location we're doing it, is in teaching. Yeah. We sell, I mean, maybe $10,000 worth of produce in a year, which is not very much. I've penciled it out in a whole variety of ways. I cannot grow squash and go sell it for $2 a pound at the farmer's market and still pay the property taxes here. Right. But I can do programming and teaching not, not to make Hawthorne farm bigger, but to make more people out there connected with their landscapes and growing their food. Yeah. So that's a short answer. And my hope is that some form of food connection is possible for everyone, wherever they are. And doing the challenge saying, I am not going go to go to the grocery store for this year, that was what gave me the feeling of need that motivated me. So even if there's not a lot of time or cash for people to do this, I'd say then just size your challenge to whatever your resources are. I've talked with friends who do one day a month of food challenge or a month long homegrown lettuce challenge. Whatever's the inspiring challenge that fits in your life, I'd say take it up. Yeah, that makes sense to make it scalable for whoever, because otherwise it's totally overwhelming. I, I could never do that, which brings me to my next question. Would you do it again? I would love to. I do it the first week of every month now. Mm -hmm. 
And then the rest of the time, of course, you know, we're still mostly eating from the garden plus coffee and chocolate. Coffee and chocolate. <laughs> we pretty much right. still eat this way. One of our housemates said, we might look like paupers, but we eat like kings. <laughs> Which, <laughs> you know, I just don't want to go back to the grocery store. I mostly want to eat what I grow, especially having worked to mineralize the soil, to balance the soil. I live as part of my ecosystem. And I am Hawthorne Farm talking to you today. I've been eating here long enough that I am made out of this soil. And that is such a cool feeling that I didn't even know existed until I really started feeling it in my cells and saying, wow, the health of the soil here is the health of my body. And we are truly influencing each other. Right. Well, it is tip time. Maybe some of that will influence your tip. Uh, do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? Oh, there are so many, and it boils down to this. Sit down. Mm. <laughs> Flip over a five-gallon bucket and sit and watch and listen and smell what is actually happening. Because when I try to argue with reality, I lose 100% of the time. Nature always so my, wins, right? Yes, my constant quest is what is actually happening here? Mm -hmm. And then I'm not wasting energy. Those five minutes of observation, that makes a huge difference. So I would say that my hot garden tip is to watch your garden for five minutes a day. And if you don't live close to your garden, watch the sky for five minutes a day. Be outside just paying attention for five minutes and see what it does for you. Try it every day. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because I have that as the foundation of my online pest control course. It's yeah. just observation is everything. And, and, and these two fingers are the best pest control, basically, <laughs> like your thumb and forefinger are going to be the best. But so yeah, that's a really important tip. So um, I think everyone should go outside. I mean, not that we we need to go outside any, we absolutely need to go outside, but it's about the awareness and being present and just observing what's happening while we're out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Alexia, for that great tip. Where do people find you? The best place is at our website, hawthornfarm.org. And there's no E at the end of Hawthorne. And it's only one farm hawthornfarm.org and you can sign up for our newsletter. I've got some free garden journals. I just want people to be outside connecting with this amazing world we live in. So thanks for your part in helping so many people do that. Of course. And do you have any social media feeds or YouTube channel, anything that you want to share also? We do. We're on Instagram at Hawthorne Farm. There's a lot of photogenic stuff that happens here. I can't. And that also goes on to Facebook. And Got it. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, that's it, Garden Nerds. You will find links to Hawthorne Farm's website at gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share their youth and adult programs and their garden guides for northern climates. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under gardennerd1, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening! <laughs>